Hello, everyone, and welcome to our first ever episode of our podcast on why the Philippines did not become a newly industrializing country by Leonora Angeles. I am your host, Mr. Mark LaGuardia, and with me is Mr. Don Edmar Dungog. And we will be focusing and tackling on the main points and aspects of this topic. And to start off this podcast, uh, it's best to talk about the Philippines as it's often a puzzle to many international observers compared to its Asian neighbors, South Korea and Taiwan, which have both attained the inviolable NIC or newly industrializing country status. The Philippines has lagged behind both countries in terms of several economic development indicators such as the GNP growth per capita income, life expectancy, calorie intake requirements, and etc. Only a few decades ago, the Philippines was considered as the jewel among Southeast Asian nations and even referred to in some literature as an NIC like South Korea and uh, Brazil, for example. The Philippines appeared set to join the ranks of the NICs in the early 1970s with large and growing sectors of manufacturing export of labor-intensive goods, especially when other Asian NICs were vacating the field of light labor-intensive manufacturers and moving into skilled and capital-intensive products. But now, all other Southeast Asian nations, including Thailand, Indonesia, and Malaysia, have surpassed the Philippines. Now, this is where it gets tricky because we all know the Philippines is rich in natural resources, has killed human labor, and other factors working in its favor. Yet, what went wrong with its development strategy? Why did it not become an NIC? Considering that the Philippines during the post-war period had shared similar characteristics with South Korea and Taiwan, the presence of an authoritarian state, close economic ties with the United States, integration with the global market, similar liberal orientation in development policy strategies, and other prescriptions from international financial agents, and at least for a time, almost similar location within the international division of labor, it is interesting to explore the reason behind the Philippines' inability to move towards the same path of economic development pursued by South Korea and Taiwan, respectively. This podcast, of course, focuses on the role of the state and its policies in both agriculture and industry, which shaped the contours of Philippine economic underdevelopment in the last three decades in an attempt to analyze the reasons why the Philippines was unable to attain a status similar to the East Asian NICs. It will try to demonstrate that the Philippine state, unlike its counterparts, in the East Asian MCs had not been able to take advantage of opportunities available in the international economic scene because of certain domestic factors that constrained sound economic planning in both agriculture and industry. Not that global factors were unimportant, but that since the international context of development per se, remained similar for many Asian nations. 
It is only by looking at the domestic forces that shape development policymaking in both agriculture and industry, especially at the level of state institutions, that we could adequately access why the Philippines had missed the chance to become an NIC. While this podcast is interested in analyzing the Philippine model of industrial development by way of comparing it with the East Asian NICs, it should not be interpreted that this paper is advocating the adoption by other countries of the NIC's formula for economic quote-unquote success. Not only because development models successful in one country are not readily applicable in another, but also because the NIC's economic formula must also be critically viewed. The successive MCs like Brazil and South Korea, for example, is based on the dependence on foreign capital, growth without equity, and the repression of their own people to preserve the status quo. This podcast is organized as follows. First, an overview of the role of agriculture and industry in economic development will be discussed from the perspective of both development theory and industrial policy. Second, the role of the state in agricultural and industrial development will be analyzed using the cases of South Korea and Taiwan, which both have a substantial agricultural economic base relevant for the purposes of this study or topic. Hence, the examples of other East Asian NICs, Singapore and Hong Kong, are given very minimal attention. Third, the development of the Philippine political economy will be presented from a historical perspective, focusing on the role of the state during the period of martial law under President Marcos. The fourth and main chapter provides a substantiation of six main propositions comparing the Philippines with South Korea and Taiwan and identifying the reasons why the Philippines had pursued a different path of economic development. So first, we move on to the first chapter, which is the state, agriculture, and industry, and the INIC's experience. In this chapter, we'll be focusing on the agriculture-industry linkages in development literature. So the importance of agricultural development to industrialization could not be overemphasized. Experiences of various countries show that economic development would not occur without simultaneously developing agriculture and industry. That a balance between agriculture and industry, rural and urban areas is necessary to achieve sustainable development And that has been demonstrated by the examples of advanced industrialized countries since the early 19th century and the NICs in the 1960s and 1970s. This vital relationship between agriculture and industry and its specific implications to agricultural and industrial policy will be analyzed from the perspective of two related bodies of literature, namely development theory and industrial policy. In agricultural, economic, and development theory, agriculture is seen as a resource reservoir, which food, labor, finance, and 
all of those can be drawn to fuel the growth of urban industrial activities. When agricultural productivity is low or somehow stagnant, appropriate public policies are needed to release from agriculture its potential surplus of food output laborers and saving capacity. It is when agriculture, agricultural productivity is rising through the combination of technological progress and investment that we see a more dynamic linkage between agriculture and industry. Increments in farm outputs and income become available for resource transfer into industry. Adequacy in food resources could permit rural to urban migration, lessening the unemployed in the rural areas as they are absorbed into the industrial labor force. And as agricultural incomes rise, the rural population enjoys the purchasing power to avail of the goods produced by the industrial sector. Hence, as the economy develops, we see the economic structure of society changing from one that is basically agricultural to one that is industrial. The contribution of the agricultural sector to overall growth tends to decline, while that from the manufacturing industry and service sector rises. And now we move on to the role of the state in MC's development, which is the next chapter for our podcast. So the economic success of the East Asian NICs has been explained in various ways. Emphasis has been placed on the favorable international conditions, high rate of growth in the world country that created the demand for their manufactured exports as well as on domestic factors such as the level of educational attainment in the East Asian NICs, political stability, right mix of state protectionism, open and export-oriented policies, and relatively poor resource endowment, which, through not a necessary condition, has pushed them to look for outward-oriented strategies. Others have Taiwanese or have highlighted the importance of the unique historical linkage of both the Korean and Taiwanese economies with that of Japanese during the colonial era which shaped their economic and class structure and later on the state initiatives on land reform. While some point to the presence of a skilled, disciplined tabor force willing to accept low wages because of the cultural distinctiveness of East Asian brought about by a Confucian culture which nurtures a of course, a different attitude towards work and authority, there are some who provide a more structural explanation to the absence of a strong militant working class movement in the East Asian NICs, which also reinforces labor subordination to capitalist forces. A perspective recently developed suggests the importance of domestic political coalitions, institutions, and ideas that shape rational choice-making and responses to the international system. In other words, the role of state institutions, especially the government in both South Korea and Taiwan, is considerably more direct that of merely setting the broad guidelines of production and consumption or simply influencing 
the economy through market forces. The government itself is an active participant in nearly all business decisions and arrangements acceptable to the private sector because, first and foremost, uh, it is not a constraining capital accumulation and it is, in fact, conducive to the success of its enterprises. And to give you a bit of a background or to differentiate between the Philippines, let us first explain the state and the land reform in South Korea and Taiwan. What was their land reform like? So the initiation of land reform in both South Korea and Taiwan, both of which have a substantial agricultural base, enabled the breakdown of the old landlord system. The eventual increase in agricultural activity, the conversion of agricultural surplus into industrial and financial capital, and the maintenance of a good balance between agricultural and industrial sectors. Such desired effects, however, would not have been possible without the active intervention of the state in the performance of its role in legitimation and capital accumulation. Hence, land reform for both Taiwan and Korea is the key issue to be considered from the perspective of their later industrial, industrial development. The legislation of the land reform program in South Korea and Taiwan was carried out under similar circumstances in both countries. Land reform became a political imperative as a result of the balance of class forces in the post-war period. And now we move on to the case of Taiwan, where Taiwan's agricultural agriculture was dominated by big landlords during the 1885 to 1945 colonial period, capturing more than one-third of total agricultural income. And agriculture then accounted for 90% of exports and contributed twice the share of industry to gross domestic product. And of course, Taiwan was also supported by the United States. And the Kuomintang implemented a thorough land reform program because of fear of rural unrest following the victim of the Maoists in mainland, mainland China. And its three stages of land reform, the Rent Reduction Program in 1949, the con confiscation and sale to tenants of Japanese-owned public lands beginning in 1951, and the Land to the Tiller Program of 1953 to 1954, which provided for an ownership limit of three hectares for every farmer. And lastly for my part is the case of south korea so you guys can differentiate all of these due to the defeat of the japanese after the war intensified the popular feeling in favor of land reform in south korea more than 90 percent of formerly japanese owned lands had been transferred to korean cultivators so they are very much uh, related and uh in sync to their National Assembly elections of 1948, where there is a scarce evidence supporting that the same landlords became merchants and industrialists since some of them sold their government bonds and shares in Japanese industries to new entrepreneurs. Many landlords remained wealthy even after the confiscation of their lands by the government or their disposal through private share. 
Thus, landlords' economic functions of discredit extension, financial rural improvements, production planning, marketing supervision, were now done by state institutions. Hello, this is Donit Mardumog, and now I will be continuing the discussion of this episode. The Philippine political economy in the post-war period on historical roots of peripheral development. The Philippines was a former colony of Spain for more than three centuries from 1521 to 1898 until administration of the islands was transferred to the hands of the Americans in 1899 after the Spanish-American War. The main source of wealth and prestige during the Spanish period was landholding. Thus, when the economy was opened up to commerce, it was the export of agricultural products such as sugar, rice, hemp, tobacco, and indigo from Spanish-owned haciendas and friar estates that provided the main source of revenue for the colonial state and the landed elites in the Philippines. Under Spanish and subsequently American colonialism, the Philippine economic situation became a showcase of classic dependence whose dynamics are nurtured by its incorporation into the global market managed by its colonizers. It was mainly an exporter of raw materials, importer of finished products, and later host to large agribusinesses involved in the export of crop production and multinational corporations producing half-manufactured goods and other export products. The local elites in the country became the main buffer between masses and the colonizers and it is this history of elite collaboration with foreign powers which has long undermined Philippine sovereignty and independent economic development. The Philippine development planners would like the economy to industrialize not by becoming an exporter of raw materials and agricultural cash crops but by developing the country's domestic industrial capacity without much dependence on foreign capital. Between 1938 and 1956, the major dynamic element for agriculture and industry was producing for the domestic market with private and government consumption showing greater growth in real product that, uh, than for investment or export. Through ISI using several legal and administrative measures such as the licensing of foreign exchange transaction, the administration of credit resources, uh, regula- regulation of foreign direct investments, and other regulatory powers, a new class of Filipino entrepreneurs developed in the manufacturing sector. By the late 1950s, however, the Philippine the economy experienced balance of payments, the difficulties leading to a series of decontrolled measures, peso devaluation, a shift in the internal terms of trade against the infant industrial sector, and a redirection of income flows toward the raw material uh, and traditional commodity producing sectors. The Philippine state and agricultural and industrial policies during the Marcos years. 
The, uh, the American recipe for political democracy was well followed in the Philippines from 1946 to 1972. The masses were mobilized through traditional client relations as landlords and capitalists alternated in occupying positions of state power. Soon after the declaration of martial law, Marcos signed a land reform code restricted to rice and cornlands which provided for a leasehold system for farmlands before, uh, below 7 hectares in size and for uh, redistribution of land to tenants for those whose owners have more than 7 hectares. This agrarian reform program, limited and unsatisfactory to begin with, met serious obstacles in its implementation due to resistance of landlords, their attempts to evade the law by converting the other crops or residential uh, commercial purposes and slow bureaucratic operations. The liberal extensions of loans and vigorous attractions of foreign capital were accompanied by nepotism and corruption which grew to unprecedented levels. The lack of public accountability and absence of a politicized and organized citizenry placed Marcos and his cronies in a prolonged situation where no moral restraint or political supervision could prevent them from using the nation's coffers for their personal benefits. Impediments to grow in terms of why the Philippines did not become another South Korea or Taiwan. The central role of the state of formulation of a mixed development strategies is the main point to be analyzed in discussing the reasons why the Philippines did not become uh, an, uh, an NIC like South Korea and Taiwan. It is inadequate to merely say that the Philippines had missed the golden opportunities opened up for capital accumulation by the international economy. What is the political economy behind these missed opportunities? Given that the same constraints and possibilities in the international economy were available to all NIC aspirants, why did the Philippines fail to take advantage of these opportunities? If individuals are considered uh, as rational decision makers, why do some states like the Philippines seem less rational than others? It's important to analyze both the domestic and international forces and conditions that, the in, uh, that influence state policy choices and decision making. The method of difference is used here to analyze why the Philippines on the basis of certain hypothesized differences had followed a different development path from South Korea and Taiwan. It appears that despite the fact that the Philippine state, especially during the Marcos administration, exhibited certain authoritarian characteristics and the conjunctured events that had shaped positively or negatively the policy choices are made by the Philippine state and police, uh, political elites. The following theses in this form of proposition are substantiated and offered as reasons behind missed opportunities that kept the 
Philippines away from the path of development along the lines pursued by South Korea and Taiwan. First, uh, the nature of the Philippine colonial state and class structured after the Second World War has set the tone for the shaping of post-war economic policies which prevented its early industrialization. The states that developed in Taiwan and South Korea were basically strong, activist, anti-communist, uh, anti-communist states precisely because of the unique historical events that led the post-colonial state formation after the war. Massive U.S. aid uh, was extended to the new nation-states because of American hegemonic interest of not only warding off the threat of communism but also restructuring uh, the alignment of forces and balance of power in the region after the war. Second, the ill timing of the Philippines ISI had maintained the Philippines' unfavorable location within the international and regional divisions of labor. On the other hand, the Philippine authoritarian state that developed much later than South Korea had a weak character. Third, unlike South Korea and Taiwan, which had been far-sighted enough to target the domestic production of intermediate and capital goods, the Philippine economy had not moved um, beyond import substituting of tight consumer goods for the domestic market while at the same time importing the necessary capital goods. Fourth, unlike South Korea and Taiwan, the presence of a strong landlord class in the Philippines which occupies important positions in, uh, in, state, in state institutions has uh, consistently block any attempt to enact a progressive land reform program that could help create an indigenous entrepreneurial class and stimulate industrial growth. Fifth, the emerging indigenous entrepreneurial class in the Philippines before 1972 did not fully develop because of the strong nepotism during Marcos' rule that, it, um, that discouraged the development of free and open competition among several aspiring groups of entrepreneurs. The relatively uh, weak position of local entrepreneurs who suffer from the lack of production incentives and other support make them find attractive uh, the option to tie up with foreign capital, enabling the greater dom uh, domination of the economy by foreign direct investment compared by MCs such as South Korea and Taiwan, and even Singapore. Sixth, the Philippine state under the Marcos regime had incurred and poorly managed a huge foreign debt since 1970s. The poor allocation of foreign, uh, foreign loans and mismanagement of debt crisis had not only worsened and economic situation but also div diverted valuable, uh, valuable resources away from better and productive areas of investment. The conclusion of this um, discussion is that the preceding section has shown that a lot of factors, historical, political, and economic were behind the 
um, inability of the Philippines to catch up with the economic growth of the East Asian NICs. South Korea, Taiwan, and Singapore have surpassed the Philippines in all indicators of economic growth and welfare because of the proper mixture of domestic policies pursued by the state in responding to both local and international pressures. There are other issues not fully addressed by the paper, particularly issues of welfare and uh, income distribution in the country studied. There are certainly a lot of unsatisfactory features in the NIC's formula of economic growth, especially the preference of growth and development over democracy and distribution which make it not an ideal model for other third world countries to follow. Both South Korea and the Philippines have poor distribution of income and are still governed by regimes which have little consideration of human rights and are highly reliant on U.S. patronage. The East Asian NICs have been able to take advantage of opportune moments in the international economy that are not likely to reappear in this decade of the 90s. Hence, the Philippines is likely to maintain its disadvantaged position in the international division of labor. So we have already reached the end of our episode of this podcast on why the Philippines did not become a newly industrializing country. We hope that you were able to learn something from this discussion and uh, thank you all so much for listening and have a good one.